What's up, mortals? This is Mortality Minded, where we explore life, death, and whatever's next through culture, science, personal growth, and more. I'm your host, Thomas Gaudio, and this is the very first episode of the podcast, which is part of a larger project, including a blog and a book I'm working on. So this episode will be an introduction to a few things, the podcast and how it'll work, what it means to be mortality-minded and why I think it's important, why we generally have so much trouble thinking and talking about the end of life, but also how that's changing and how I see this podcast and the bigger project as part of that change. And finally, who the hell I am and why and how I became interested in this subject, because you don't know me, but I'm hoping that'll change as we explore this world together. Now, you may be thinking I started this project in response to the seemingly endless death, grief, and other struggles many of us have been experiencing this year. But the project really started as a Tumblr blog under a different name years ago and has evolved since then. Though I gotta say, 2020 is shaping up as the year of being mortality minded in many ways. First, we were blindsided by a viral pandemic that's killed more than 865,000 people around the world, with more than 186,000 dead in the US alone as of September 3rd. Those are tragically high numbers, and they're still climbing. Not to mention the economic downturn stemming from attempts to mitigate the spread of the virus that have caused hardships for so many people. I don't think we'll truly know the impact of all this loss for a long time, especially since it's being prolonged due to physical distancing requirements that make coming to terms with these hardships extremely difficult in many cases. You know, for example, the restrictions on funerals that limit how many people can gather in one place to grieve with each other and comfort each other. Then, of course, came the social upheaval that began as protests seeking justice for George Floyd's highly publicized death at the hands of Minneapolis police officers and has evolved to focus more on the broader issues of police brutality and systemic racism still harming black people in the U.S. today. These problems obviously go back decades and centuries, but have you know, risen to the forefront of our public consciousness in 2020. I've addressed the issues related to the pandemic and the protests a bit through my blog and social media profiles, but I plan to bring more light to them on the podcast. So let's talk a bit about the podcast. It'll be a mix of me talking with experts and everyday people about mortality and everything that follows from it, dying, death, grief, and the possibility of an afterlife, as well as me talking solo about current events, concepts, and other things I find interesting all through the lens of being mortality-minded. So what does that exactly mean, to be mortality-minded? Well, to me, it comprises three main aspects. Working to face and ultimately embrace our mortality, satisfying our natural curiosity about the end of life, and being more accepting and understanding of grief. Let's start with working to face and ultimately embrace our mortality a difficult task for many people, including me. Why is it seemingly so hard for so many of us to accept this fact, considering it's an intrinsic and inevitable part of life that happens to every single organism on the planet, whether human, animal, bug, plant, or microscopic critter? 
And considering that reminding ourselves of this ultimate deadline can be a great motivating force to help us make the most of whatever time we have left. A deadline residing in the back of our minds that's typically shrouded in the mystery of not knowing when or how it will happen. There are two main reasons as to why we seem to struggle so much with this fact that I've come across in my reading and study so far. One explanation for this common avoidance is that it's an inherent coping mechanism all humans have and use to help us avoid the potentially crippling dread that results from the conflict between our mortality awareness on one hand and our survival instinct on the other, a concept addressed in a fascinating area of social psychology called terror management theory. When it comes to terror management theory, what I just explained is only the tip of the iceberg. It's too involved to go into detail here, but fear not. I plan to dedicate at least one episode to it in the future, and we'll probably mention it from time to time, if not more frequently, because I'm kind of obsessed with it. The other reason that seems to play a big role in our general reluctance to think and talk about death is our relative unfamiliarity with it in our lives due to two major factors that have arisen since the mid to late 1800s in the US. Number one, Improvements in public health, medicine, and other areas have led to lower mortality rates and increased average lifespans in the last you know, 100 to 200 years. Relatedly, most people die in hospitals and nursing homes these days. Combined, these and other factors mean most of us are not dying until we're in our 70s or older, and it's not happening in our homes where it once did. So that's one part of the equation in terms of why we're generally unfamiliar with death these days. The other significant variable is the rise of the funeral industry, uh, the seed of which is often considered to be the start of modern embalming that arose during the Civil War to help transport dead soldiers back to their homes for burial. Essentially, as we increasingly outsourced taking care of our dead to professionals, What was once our natural and regular contact with the dead decreased significantly. To me, learning to accept and eventually embrace our mortality starts with both intentionally recognizing and respecting our own mortality and making an effort to become more familiar with this part of life in any number of ways on a regular basis. Which leads me to the second leg of the mortality-minded stool, so to speak, satisfying what I believe is our natural curiosity about this topic. Whether it's about what happens to our bodies when we decompose, if there is or isn't an afterlife, different ways to memorialize our dead across cultures, why death even exists in the first place, or everything I just mentioned and more, that's me. I believe we all have the urge to know more about the subject to one degree or another. I think it's much more present when we're younger and generally more curious, but it slowly recedes to the back of our minds as day-to-day realities take priority. Not to mention that due to the removal of death from our culture that I touched on earlier, it may be seen as morbid or in bad taste to focus on or express interest in the subject. Or maybe it just feels that way sometimes. But how could we not be curious about the reality that we will no longer exist one day? Possibly at all, but at a minimum, not in our current form, and what happens to us while we're transitioning to that state of non-existence or altered existence, and why it even happens at all. It seems bizarre to me to not think 
talk and learn as much as possible about this fact of life that shapes our reality in fundamental ways we often don't realize or consider. And lastly, being mortality-minded also means being more accepting and understanding of grief. Grief can be wild and messy and come in myriad shapes, sizes, and durations. It can unleash deep anger and sadness, joy, apathy, confusion, and other states within us, maybe even at the same time or in close proximity to one another. It can last for a very short time or a very long time. It can stem from losses of all different kinds. Everything from the death of a loved one, whether human or animal, uh, to the end of a relationship and more. I think we tend to be equally unfamiliar and uncomfortable with grief as we are with death, which makes sense in a way since grief is so closely related to death in all its forms. But like death, grief is both universal and deeply personal, and it should be given as much time and space to exist as it needs, regardless of how long it's with us and which form it takes. Having said all that, I think things have been changing for the better in terms of how we deal with the end of life in recent decades, especially during the last 10 years or so. Uh, The shift can be seen as really as beginning with the start of hospice care in the 60s and 70s. Other changes that accelerated during the second half of the 20th century and the first decade or so of the 21st century include the rise of cremation, which actually surpassed burial as the most popular form of final disposition in the U.S. uh, in 2015, and whose popularity is predicted to continue rising for decades. So bye-bye burial, not really, but it's changing, continuing to change. And to a lesser degree, green burials. Green burials are a type of uh, burial in which bodies are typically unembalmed, wrapped in a simple shroud or placed in a plain wooden coffin, and buried only a few feet down in the ground to encourage decomposition among all the little buggies and microbes down there. Uh, Often in a forest or forest-like setting, it's more natural and less maintained than the cemeteries most of us are used to. Especially in the last 10 years or so, there has been a slow but steady rise in progressive funeral directors and home funerals, for example, uh, online communities built around death awareness and acceptance, Death doulas, which was new to me, um, you know, think people who help with births, birth doulas, which were equally unfamiliar to me, but you know, on the other end of the spectrum, helping with people uh, who are dying and as they're approaching end of life, helping them directly, helping their families with various ways. Uh, also, death cafes have uh, actually become pretty popular in the last ten years, um, where people gather informally to talk about all these uh, different topics under the end of life sort of umbrella um, while having, you know, coffee, tea, snacks. Um, And they can be held in all different kinds of places. They can be held in restaurants. They can be held in actual coffee shops. They can be held in people's homes. Um, And then there's also festivals like Reimagine End of Life, which I went to in 2018, and End Well, which is kind of like TED Talks for death and dying and end of life stuff. So I consider mortality minded to be part of this wave of change. For me, it all started in 2010 when I serendipitously read The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy, which masterfully explores the psychology of a middle-aged judge in 19th century Russia, suddenly forced to confront his own mortality and upper-class discomfort with death and disease after discovering he has a terminal illness. 
it's not hyperbole to say this novella had a profound impact on me and was a catalyst for my own mortality awakening. The following year, inspired by this new perspective, I chose to write about death and dying through a journalistic lens during graduate journalism school at Northwestern University. It was an eye-opening experience that sparked my creative journey down this path. After school, I went through a life-changing breakup with someone I loved and experienced deep grief for the first time, something my mom actually identified, who recognized it after going through her own grief following the deaths of her mother and father years earlier. Following several years of growing increasingly unhappy with the direction of my life, I found myself wanting to return more and more to my creative exploration of mortality and its corollaries. I launched the first iteration of this project in early 2016, then called by a different name, when I began interviewing people on the streets of New York City about their thoughts on mortality, dying, death, and the possibility of an afterlife, and posting them on Tumblr. That's been an interesting experiment over the years that's resulted in wildly different reactions in people. Some people want nothing to do with me and look at me like I'm crazy for bringing up the subject, which is fine. Yeah, but they, the, the verbal and nonverbal reactions, more than nonverbal, because they'll be polite usually if they reject me, but the look on their face and their body language is like, get the hell away from me. While others seem to almost have been waiting for someone to ask them about these things, and the floodgates open. The blog has evolved over the years as I've dived deeper into this world. I've attended a death cafe. I participated in several events at the Reimagine End of Life Festival in New York City back in 2018. Uh, one of those events was amazing, and I ended up writing about it. Um, it's called the Ultimate Shavasana Workshop, which culminated in us uh, being led through a guided meditation while we were in makeshift shrouds or cardboard coffins. I was in a cardboard coffin with you know um, holes punctured in the side for airflow. And they were um, painted by these art students beforehand. I chose one with this really cool interstellar scene. I actually still have the cover in my living room right now. Um, And so it was really anxiety producing initially getting into the coffin. And then as soon as the cover closed and I was enveloped in this darkness, I felt completely calm. And then we were just led to this meditation. It was amazing. So I, yeah, if you want to check that, that article I wrote, it's uh, in Human Parts, which is a medium publication, and also on my website, uh, mortalityminded.com. And what else? Uh, last year, I completed a certificate program in thanatology, which is the interdisciplinary study of dying, death, and grief. And that was an amazing program. Um, many different courses covering a variety of topics under this end of life uh, umbrella. And I continue to read many books related to the subject, including The American Way of Death by Jessica Mifford, Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers by Mary Roach, and Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I'm currently reading On the Shortness of Life by Stoic philosopher Seneca. All amazing books, highly recommend them as a starting point into the subject. And there are many others as well. Another experience that significantly informed my views on these matters uh, was my grandmother's death last year, specifically my time helping with her care as she declined and being with her when she died. 
she'd been living with my parents and was doing relatively well until she had a stroke one day in the months after her 100th birthday. Despite her advanced age, she was recovering from the stroke in the hospital when we think she had another stroke and then had to be put on a breathing tube. After consulting with the hospital staff who deemed her to be brain dead with little chance of recovery and taking her do not resuscitate order into account, we decided to take her off the ventilator with no food or hydration to let her die peacefully. A priest came to do last rites since she was a devout Catholic and we left in the wee hours of the morning with the expectation that she may be dead when we returned later. But when we came back later that day, we were shocked to learn that she was breathing just fine on her own again and her heart rate was normal. The staff was equally surprised, but since they had deemed her brain dead with essentially no chance of recovery, we continued to keep her off food and hydration. Until at some point, hours later, as we sat nearby, for some reason, I yelled, Grandma, very loudly. And she turned her head slightly in my direction. So my mom starts freaking out. She ex- exclaims, you know, she moved her head. Did you, did you see that? She moved her head. And starts crying. And then we all ran over to my grandmother. And she slowly came out of it. We had to coax her out of it. We were talking to her, you know, wetting her lips with a little sponge. Um, it, was, it was incredible. And to this day, I still don't know exactly why I yelled out to her. You know, maybe I noticed some movement in my peripheral vision or it could be because in the back of my mind, I had questions about whether she was truly brain dead since all they did to check was shine a light in her eyes to measure how her pupils reacted and try speaking to her to see if she responded. But the thing is, she was sedated before the breathing tube was put in and she had hearing aids since she was very hard of hearing. Whatever sparked it, that was the beginning of a recovery that gave her two more years of life. Her quality of life had greatly diminished, though, and she was already dealing with mild to moderate dementia. So my parents needed help with her if she was going to stay in her apartment on the side of their house. Eventually, thanks to being eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid, my grandmother had two aides around the clock to help her eat, use the bathroom, and shower. They were an enormous help and treated her very well, something we were extremely grateful for. I visited as often as I could to help out, even getting some paid time off from work to do so thanks to a law in New York allowing people to take a certain amount of paid time off to assist family members in need. After learning about the benefits of hospice care during my thanatology program, I recommended it to my parents for my grandma and they agreed. Essentially, it meant that she would be given only comfort care, such as morphine if she were in pain, and not be treated if she had another health problem such as a stroke. In other words, the goal was to let nature take its course and let her die as peacefully as possible. My parents and I were able to spend a considerable amount of time with her and help care for her those last two years thanks to those government health care programs that allowed her to have AIDS and hospice care. During the last week or two of her life, as she lost the ability to communicate and eat and it became clear that death was imminent, we spent as much time with her as possible including my aunt and uncle who had come to stay with my parents. On what turned out to be the day my grandma died, a harp player named Catherine DeLong, who I interviewed for the next episode, came to play and sing for my grandmother. Catherine is a music thanatologist, 
which means she plays for people who are dying, often in hospice settings, to bring them some comfort and joy as they approach the end. She's also the facilitator of the thanatology program I attended last year. Catherine played incredibly for my grandma, just a few hours before she died. You know, her and I talked in detail about her work during our conversation for episode two, so make sure to check that out. After Catherine left, we all decided to have lunch, but I stayed behind with my grandma. It was just me and her. I sat next to her bed and held her hand, and at some point, I started repeating a saying to her that she'd said to me and other members of my family countless times over the years, whenever we needed to hear it most. A saying I now repeat to myself every morning, along with another mantra I developed. Hers is in Italian. She was born in southern Italy and came to the U.S. with her family when she was 19. And it goes like this. Ordina al tuo destino di essere bello e tale sarà. Which means, command your destiny to be beautiful, and it will be. I repeated it over and over to her, like a prayer or an incantation. A little bit of travel advice, just in case she was going somewhere. I leaned in close to her ear while saying it, to make sure she could hear me, since she still had her hearing aids in, and I'd recently learned that hearing is the last sense to go before death, at least that's what many people think. At this point, she hadn't eaten in days, she was drifting in and out of consciousness, and when she was awake, she often seemed to be somewhere else, not really able or wanting to focus on her surroundings. But suddenly, while I was repeating her saying back to her, inches from her face, she turned her head toward me, and her eyes opened widely. We made eye contact, and I smiled. It only lasted a few seconds before she turned away again and seemed to drift off. But I think in that moment, she knew exactly who I was and what I was saying, and she was grateful. As she took her last breaths an hour or two later, we were all there, surrounding her, holding her hand, touching her, to let her know she wasn't alone. And when she finally took her last breath, it was the most natural thing. It felt completely normal, yet utterly profound at the same time. And that's the paradox of death. It's one of the most common events in life, yet it's deeply meaningful to us. That's why I think of that experience as a final gift. From us to her, to be there for her during her most vulnerable moments, but also from her to us. It was her last lesson in a lifetime of imparting hard-won wisdom to us, a visceral lesson she could only teach us in that way, a lesson I think I'll continue learning from for as long as I live. Because the understanding she gave us during that experience is infinitely dense like a foreign yet familiar black hole of human experience. Maybe that sounds morbid, but it wasn't. Not for me. Not even close. It was joyous. It was healing. I was so glad to be there with her and for her when she died. 
and it was her time. She died at 102 years old while surrounded by family and one of her aides. Shout out to Merlin, who was nothing short of amazing with my grandmother. What more could a person ask for? Earlier, I mentioned I repeat another saying to myself every day, which I want to share with you before we wrap up here. This one I developed myself a few years ago after attending weekly Buddhist meditation classes for about six months. Ultimately, I felt Buddhism wasn't quite right for me, but I took a lot away from those classes, especially a meditation practice that includes a focus on recognizing and accepting death. So here's the mantra. I will die, and I could become severely ill and or disabled. One or more of these state changes could happen or start happening right now, decades from now, or at any moment in between. So I will make the most of whatever time I have left while I'm still healthy and breathing. I say that one and my grandma saying to myself every morning shortly after waking up, usually while taking a 30 to 60 second ice cold shower to help wake my groggy ass up. Both have been crucial in reminding me every single day to not take anything for granted, to focus on what's important, and that being happy and fulfilled is a choice, a mindset, a way of living, not something outside of my control that does or doesn't happen to me. Does that mean it works perfectly every time? No. Does that mean there are moments and days when I take things for granted and I'm feeling unhappy and all that? Of course. But these are anchors for me and they're daily reminders. And I sometimes I say them throughout the day too when I'm in a certain mind frame or I need to kind of jolt myself out of my stupor or whatever it's whatever is going on. So they're, they've both been very important for me. Well, that's it for me. I hope you got a sense of who I am and what I want to do with this podcast and that you found this first episode informative and enjoyable or at least not terrible. I'm excited, like through the roof into deep space excited to be evolving mortality-minded into this podcast. And I'm really looking forward to exploring the subject with you and getting to know you along the way. So if you're feeling it, please subscribe through your podcast player of choice. It should be available through all the major platforms like Apple, Google, Spotify, etc. If not already, then soon. My goal is to publish weekly episodes, so keep an eye out for that. You can also check out mortalityminded.com for episodes and other content. And you can follow me at mortalityminded on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for alerts on the latest episodes and other stuff I post. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, stay mortality-minded.